Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this all-new episode, Bishop is joined by Donald Schmidt, attorney and member of the Diocesan Review Board. Together, they discuss how the diocese is diligently working to protect the youth in Fort Wayne, South Bend, including the critical role of the Review Board, the Safe Environment Program, the process followed when an allegation comes in, the parallel tracks of criminal law and canon law, and how Bishop's first priority is the healing of victims. If you have a question for a future episode, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop as always. Thank you again for taking some time to be with us. You're welcome, Kyle. Great to be with you. And also with us today is Donald Schmidt. We have a special guest. He's a member of the Review Board for the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend, also a consultant on the National Review Board, a former federal prosecutor and assistant United States attorney in the Northern District of Indiana. So uh, really uh, kind of a big deal. So thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Schmidt. Kyle, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I thought maybe for those that aren't familiar with the Diocesan Review Board, and then certainly there's a lot that the average person like myself doesn't know about what the Review Board does. Uh, Could you explain a little bit about the Diocesan Review Board and then also maybe how that might be similar or different to the National Review Board? Be glad to address that. Since 2002, the Catholic Church has mandated Uh, pursuant to the adoption of the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People, that every diocese and religious order have a review board consisting primarily of laypersons to assist the bishop or the superior of a religious order in dealing with allegations of sexual abuse. So about 15 years ago, I was first asked to serve on the review board for the uh, Holy Cross Priests, United States Province. Shortly thereafter, Bishop Darcy asked me to become a member of the Diocesan Review Board for Fort Wayne, South Bend, and 
Bishop Rhodes, when he became bishop here, asked me to continue to serve on the Diocesan Review Board. About uh, five years ago then, I was nominated to serve on the National Review Board, which is a little bit different body that is an advisory body for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Um, and I served a four-year term on the National Review Board. And once my term was up in June of 2018, the USCCB asked me to stay on as, as a consultant to the Bishops' Committee that deals with sexual abuse, and that's called the Committee on the Protection of Children and Young People. All told, Kyle, I've been working on sexual abuse within the Catholic Church for about the last 15 or 16 years in various capacities. And how have you seen things change over the course of those years? I've seen a number of great reforms implemented since the Charter was implemented in 2002. With the Charter and the adoption of new canon law called the Essential Norms, the Church has implemented really a zero-tolerance policy for sexual abuse. If one case of sexual abuse is established, a priest, as you might know, is permanently removed from ministry and also probably removed from the clerical state altogether. The Church has also vastly increased its commitment to its first obligation in the area of sexual abuse to commit to healing and reconciliation and pastoral outreach for victims of sexual abuse. In addition, I've been working firsthand on review boards, which are also a reform that's come to us since the implementation of the Charter in 2002, and that has increased the collaboration and co-responsibility with laypersons within the Church to assist in handling the devastating impact that comes uh, when there is clerical sexual abuse. I'm also pleased to report that the incidents of sexual abuse have fallen off dramatically. We know from really well-done studies by the College of John Jay in 2004 and 2011 that sexual abuse reached its peak in the church in the 1970s and early 1980s and then has been declining steadily since the 1980s. Since 2002, there have been relatively few cases of abuse. That's not to say that we've reached zero, and we won't stop working until we reach zero cases of abuse. But the number of cases of abuse have been steadily declining, and I think that's a testament to the efforts of the Church to implement safe environment training uh, for the people that work with children, and also to vastly improve the screening of young men that are entering uh, the priesthood today. And then, Bishop, what kind of value do these review boards add to the diocese? How necessary are they? How important are they on, on the diocesan level as well as the national level? Well, speaking on the diocesan level, our diocesan re- review board is invaluable to mm-hmm. me. I am so grateful. We have an excellent review board with, um, as Donald mentioned, the majority, the great majority are lay people who have expertise in various areas, whether it be law enforcement, of course, Donald himself, who was a federal prosecutor. Mm-hmm. We have experts in psychology. We have parents and people who work with, with young people. Our secretary for Catholic education, for example, is, is a member. We have two pastors who are members 
a lawyer. We ha- we have just an excellent group who are great advisors. I rely so much on their advice and their counsel. For example, when I need to an ass- uh, assess an allegation of sexual abuse of a minor, I go to the review board. Mm-hmm. I don't. I never just do that by myself. We have regular meetings um, that are scheduled, but when a case comes up, we'll have a special meeting. I want to add another thing. We have our own diocesan policies and procedures for dealing with sexual abuse of minors, and um, we regularly review those policies and procedures to improve them from things that we learn. And that is uh, one of the responsibilities of the review board, to regularly review those policies and procedures. And we've done that uh, a number of times since I've been bishop. So our policies and procedures, which any um, anyone can go on to the diocesan website if they're interested in knowing more about what are our procedures, for example, when there is an accusation, they can get on. Because I know a lot of people have have uh, questions about that. We have our policy on reporting incidents of child abuse. We have our whole safe environment program, the training of adults who have contact with children in the church, the criminal background checks, all those very important things. Of course, we follow the requirements of Indiana law. I'm surprised sometimes that uh, people don't know how we handle things, but it's all there. Mm -hmm. It's all there on our website. So getting back to the review board, We're really blessed here in the Diocese of Fort Wayne with uh, an outstanding board. And when were these boards established originally? As Donald mentioned, it was in the year 2002 when the bishops adopted the charter for the uh, protection of children and young people. And besides the charter, there are what we call essential norms. They are mandatory Uh, additions really to canon law about how to deal with these allegations of sexual abuse of minors by clergy. And those norms include the requirement that we have a review board. So this isn't optional. Every diocese in the United States has a review board. This confidential consultative body that helps the bishop to discharge his responsibilities in this area. And part of that, maybe, maybe we can break down some of this, the charter and what came out of this, because there's background checks for volunteers, and uh, we have a lot of people in our diocese that are on staff, but also volunteers with our schools, with our parishes, and different ministries. So can you explain some of the things that uh, the charter has put into effect to protect young people? Pursuant to the charter, it's mandatory that all persons who work with young people or are exposed to young people that are part of our church receive safe environment training. This is specific training to ensure that there's no sexual abuse and people are on guard for any kind of untoward conduct or inappropriate behavior with children. Then, as Bishop mentioned, everyone who's volunteering with children or working with children in our diocese or in our schools, we do criminal background checks on them to make sure that there's nothing in their record that would make it inappropriate for them to be working with children. In addition, uh, some of the other things that have come out of the charter since 2002 is that dioceses are to be committed to an openness and transparency with the public with 
reporting on what's happened. And pursuant to that policy of openness and transparency, as you know, Bishop recently released a list of those clerics in the Diocese of Fort Wayne who were involved in sexual abuse matters. There were credible allegations of abuse, and the release of that list is part of the openness and transparency that the Church has committed itself to. Another example of what's come out of the Charter since 2002 is that dioceses are no longer allowed to enter into any kind of confidential settlements with victims unless the victims want the settlement to be confidential. Hmm. This is an effort for the Church to be very open and, like I said, transparent with respect to what has occurred within the Church. It's also prohibited by the essential norms in the Charter for a priest that's been involved uh, with sexual abuse to be transferred to another place for ministry. Uh, That's forbidden. That was a little bit of a problem before 2002, before we understood the full scope of the sexual abuse problem and what was really behind it. Sometimes priests were transferred, but that's no longer been allowed since 2002. And as Bishop said, there's an explicit commitment in the Charter to always report sexual abuse matters to civil and criminal law enforcement authorities, and that's been done in our diocese. Whenever there's been an allegation of sexual abuse, those matters have been reported to the appropriate authorities in law enforcement. So those are some of the things that have come out as far as the reforms since 2002. And for those that have been employed or volunteered for some organization within the diocese. They've gone through the safe environment training, but can you explain what the the training and the background checks kind of look like for that? People have to give, you know, their specific identifier information so that a professional background check can be done. So this involves checking state and national records to see if anyone has any criminal convictions that might make it inappropriate for them to work or be around children. So we we guard our children in that particular way. Then the safe environment training, these are professional modules and videos and lectures that train people what is the appropriate standard of conduct around our children and also how to be on guard for something that looks amiss so that if there's something going on with somebody else, they can report that and make sure that it's well investigated so that our children are protected. And these are trainings that volunteers and our employees have to go through on a annual or semi-annual basis, and it's really designed to make sure that our children are well protected. Another part of the safe environment training is we do it also for the children and youth. In other words, in different grades, as they're going through school, Catholic school or religious education, they also get training in safe environment. And of course, we have to do it respecting the innocence of children and parents have to give permission, but it's helpful to train children to be aware of any kinds of dangers and what to do to go to an adult if they are being approached in in an appropriate manner by an adult. So that's something that is uh, part of the safe environment training, the children and youth themselves. And when you think about it, this is a massive effort because when you think about all the children, when you think about all of our employees and all of our volunteers, I think, Donald, if I'm not incorrect, we had over 17,000 
More than 17,000 people have received this specific training and criminal background checks if you're an adult that work around children. And it's my understanding that the criminal background checks are repeated every four years. The training is repeated every year or three years or five years. And so kind of continuing to make sure that people that are involved in and around youth are safe and are educated so that they can identify issues as they come up. And I know some people might say, look, I just want to volunteer. I want to help out on the playground. Why do I have to go through all of these hoops and fill out all these forms and watch these videos and stuff like that? Is there evidence that this is helping all this education and and checking on people? We know it can be viewed as an obstacle for some people to come forward and, and help, you know, and volunteer. But the protection of our children is so critical that it's worth the time and money and resources that are devoted to making sure that people are well-trained in appropriate conduct around children and making sure, as Bishop noted, that our children, too, receive training about appropriate contacts and, and, and dealings with adults. And I think it has paid off enormously. For example, in the year 2017, the last year that I have audited numbers for, across the United States, there were approximately 25 reported allegations with then-current minors. About a third of those allegations were substantiated. About a third were still under investigation at the time the audit was done, and about a third proved to be unsubstantiated. 25 allegations is 25 too many, but across all of the dioceses of the United States, that's a fairly small number. And it shows that the church's commitment to training, proper screening of priests, and the time and resources devoted to having appropriate policies and standards of conduct is really paying off with many, many fewer incidents of abuse. As I mentioned earlier, And as Bishop has committed, until that number reaches zero all across the country, we won't stop working to protect children, obviously, but the numbers have fallen off dramatically from what they were prior to 2002 when the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People was implemented. And I would add to that, Donald mentioned the audits. I think a lot of people don't know that we're audited every year. The USCCB has an outside firm that comes in to check on whether we are really observing the articles of the charter and also the essential norms. So this is something that's every year is is done by paper, but also there's an on-site audit that's offered every three years. And I always say our diocese, I want an on-site audit. Not only what we're doing on the diocesan level, that they come in and they look at our policies and how we're following them, but also they go out into parishes to make sure that the parishes, we also do audits of our parishes, but I think it's good that we have an outside group that comes in. And those re- the results of the audit for all the dioceses of the United States are published every year, and, and that's uh, what Donald was just citing this past year, 2017 audit results. And the diocese has a safe environment coordinator as well as the parishes and schools would also have a safe environment coordinator for the local outreach? That's correct. 
All right. Well, I want to continue this conversation. We've got a lot more to talk about. So coming up, we'll have more from our special guest, Donald Schmidt, lawyer and member of the Diocesan Review Board, right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We are joined today via phone by one of the members of the Diocesan Review Board and a lawyer, Donald Schmidt. Thank you for being here again. My pleasure. We talked a little bit about some of the changes that have happened since 2002 and what's happening in the diocese and in the nation as far as protecting our young people and some of the background checks and training that goes into people that are volunteering. And uh, I was curious what the process is when there are a report of allegations of sexual abuse and how is that handled when reported to the diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend? Good question, Kyle. The charter requires dioceses to have policies and procedures on how to respond to any allegation when there's reason to believe that you know sexual abuse of a minor has occurred. And we also are supposed to have a competent person or persons to assist in the pastoral care of people who report that they were sexually abused as minors by clergy or other church personnel. So we have a what we call a victim assistance coordinator, Mary Glowoski, mm-hmm. and um, and she's been doing a, a fantastic job in, in, in assisting victims. This is really a priority. But getting back to your original question, when we receive an allegation, I'm notified. The allegation normally comes through a phone call, not always, but normally through a phone call to our victim assistance coordinator because we got we put that number out there in all of our literature so mm-hmm. so people know how they could contact us. And when I receive an allegation, I appoint an investigative team, including lay people, to look into it. And these are people who have experience and expertise in, you know, interviewing and it's, it can be done by telephone or in person with the accuser so that we have the appropriate information. You know, we need to know the name of the person who's accused. We need a detailed description of the alleged sexual abuse, specific dates and places, various circumstances. We always ask if there's anyone who could corroborate their allegation. For example, people who may have knowledge about the incident of alleged sexual abuse. If the person making the report uh, is a minor, which is uh, very rare, we would contact the the parent or the guardian. If the person isn't the, the victim himself or herself, we ask them to ask the victim, the alleged victim, to contact us. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we have to respect the right of an, an alleged victim to 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 go through this or not. You know, some may not want to. Anyhow, if we have facts that we discover in this in, initial investigation that show that it's not credible, then we don't go any further unless there's new or additional information. But if it appears to be plausible after the investigation, then the accused priest or deacon is questioned about it. And sometimes the the priest or deacon will admit to it. Sometimes they, they deny it. So that's where, you know, we have to then discuss it. I'll bring it at that point to the Diocesan Review Board, obviously, and we share all that we've discovered in that initial investigation with the Diocesan Review Board so that I can receive their advice 
I am required as bishop to notify the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome at the Vatican with uh, all the relevant information that we've received. And then I can also, in that uh, notification, give what my recommendation is about how we should proceed. I think it's really important to understand that once we determine that the allegation is plausible, I would place the priest or the the deacon on administrative leave. Um, So at least temporarily, that priest or deacon is excluded from any public ministry because the investigation then continues. So that's difficult sometimes, you know, And, and in every case, when I was Bishop of Harrisburg or Bishop here, the priest who has to go be placed on administrative leave, I do inform the public mm-hmm. of the reasons. It's not saying that the priest or deacon is necessarily guilty because the investigation is continuing, but that's done for the, the purpose of um, protecting mm-hmm. children and youth. So again, this is something that um, I heavily rev- uh, rely on our review board to advise me in, in assessing the allegation and share with them all the information that we have gathered. And then the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith will respond to me about how I should proceed after that. And the, there's a number of options. They may authorize the bishop to have a, a judicial penal trial before a local church tribunal or they may authorize me to have an administrative penal process, which is not a full uh, judicial trial, but it would involve a delegate and two assessors who would um, handle the case and review the evidence. So it gets a little complicated. I don't know how much detail you want to get into the canonical process. If the cleric is judged to be guilty, whether through that judicial or administrative process, there's various penalties, canonical penalties. And of course, the most serious is what's called dismissal from the clerical state. Okay. And popularly, they call that, you know, you'll read in the newspapers, defrocking. Mm-hmm. But it's a dismissal from the clerical state. At a minimum, Bishop, isn't it true that under canon law that if a priest is found to have abused even just one minor one time, he would be removed from public ministry at a minimum under canon law. Exactly, exactly. Just one case of sexual abuse of, of a minor, that priest or that deacon is prohibited from any future ministry. If they don't go the route of dismissal from the clerical state, which only the Vatican can actually impose, Sometimes, especially for reasons of old age or, or whatever, the priest who, or deacon who is um, prohibited from any ministry would be uh, told to live a life of prayer and penance. That's something that, that happens. So you see some priests, when you look, for example, at the list of the priests who were found to have credible allegations of sexual abuse, mm-hmm. the list that we made public, uh, you'll see that some of them were dismissed from the clerical state, but others who were prohibited from ministry and uh, were to live a life of prayer and penance. Okay. And I guess, Donald, did you want to add anything else? Yeah, to, I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the 
the involvement of the review board. In my experience, the review board has been a critical part of the process in trying to assess the credibility of allegations and using its expertise and background of its members to try to ferret out what's the truth. And so the review board is using its expertise, as Bishop mentioned, in law, law enforcement, education, psychiatry, psychology, family life, and determining what additional evidence might be useful as part of a, a additional investigation in determining the accuracy of the allegation, and then determining, you know, the credibility of the priest's response, determining the credibility of the allegation, and I've found that the process that goes on with the review board at Bishop Rhodes has been a truly collaborative process where there's a great back and forth as far as determining kind of what is the truth or what is plausible, what is credible, uh, what is substantiated. And in law enforcement, we have a term called corroboration that basically means looking to other evidence to see if the allegation or assertion by a victim can be backed up by other evidence. This can be as simple as checking whether or not the priest was actually in the place where the victim said the abuse happened during the years in question. A lot of these allegations refer to incidents that were decades ago. And so we do some basic fact-checking in the files, uh, but we also talk to additional witnesses, sometimes people who may have been present in or around the abuse or family members, just to see what the true state of the evidence is and whether or not uh, the victim's assertions can be corroborated. It's also been my experience that victims in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, are treated with great care, gentleness, and compassion. We happen to be very blessed with an outstanding victim assistance coordinator, as Bishop mentioned, in Mary Glowowski, Mm -hmm. and she has a special talent for receiving accusations and allegations from victims, but also in helping to deal with them pastorally in order to, as the church is committed, to begin the healing process and the reconciliation process, hopefully, with victims. So we're incredibly blessed here to have uh, Mary uh, working with victims, but also helping to shepherd the process through, uh, including the review board. Sometimes people, I agree totally um, with what Donald just said. We are very blessed with Mary. I would like to add something because this question I hear from people sometimes, and that has to to do with the rights of a priest or deacon who is accused, Mm -hmm. who is claiming innocence. And I have to say the charter makes it very clear that when there is an accusation, there is a presumption of innocence during Hmm. the investigation. And we even encourage the accused cleric to retain the assistance of a civil lawyer and a canon lawyer or someone who can help them. And then, as I mentioned, when when I would need to put a priest or deacon on administrative leave, you know, that shouldn't be interpreted as, well, he's guilty, you know, because the investigation is continuing, unless, of course, he has admitted the guilt. So if it happens that in further investigation that the allegation is not substantiated or doesn't appear to be credible, then we have to do everything we can to restore the good name Mm -hmm. of the priest or deacon. Because, you know, 
a false allegation, of course, is is something that that can cause grave harm to the good name of a priest or deacon. So, so I want to answer that question because I do receive that question uh, quite frequently from from lay people. Yeah. In in that sense, canon law, the church's law, and civil law from our society here in the United States and the state of Indiana is similar in that the accused are afforded a presumption of innocence. So in many respects, canon law is very different from civil law and national and state law here in Indiana, but in that respect, the presumption of innocence is similar. Well, and that brings up a good point because I think we've been talking a lot about the canonical structure of reporting abuses and things. And so I kind of would like to talk a little bit about the difference between canon law and civil law, since we have both Bishop, you're a canon lawyer and Donald Schmidt is a civil lawyer on the review board. And so I want to talk about that a little bit coming up. And if you have any questions, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash Ask Bishop. You can always call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll have more from Bishop Rhodes and Donald Schmidt, one of the members of the review board for the diocese, here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop and also joined by special guest today, Donald Schmidt, a lawyer and also a member of the review board for the diocesan board and also a consultant to the national review board. We've talked a little bit about, well, we've talked a lot actually about the process of reporting abuse and investigating that. And I feel like we sometimes go back and forth between things that might be civil law versus canon law. And since we have both a civil lawyer with us and then also Bishop, you are a canon lawyer. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between canon law and civil law and how they might work independently and how they might work together? Yes, because we, we, you know, we're obviously obliged to follow both. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have to be careful. That's why we have both civil lawyers and canon lawyers involved in these uh, these situations. There are certain things that we have in canon law that really civil law doesn't really get involved in. For example, the idea that we have a diocesan review board. Mm-hmm. That's something now required by canon law. There's nothing in civil law that says that we have to have a diocesan mm-hmm. review board. There's certain penalties for an offense that's so grave as sexual abuse of minors that we have in canon law. Of course, there are civil penalties in civil law. I've already mentioned a little bit some of the penalties of from canon law, like suspension mm-hmm. from ministry or dismissal from the clerical state, whereas and, civil law would have other penalties. And that could happen even if they're found not guilty by civil law canon law might still say, we think that there's a credible allegation here and we're going to take action even though they haven't been found guilty civilly. That's correct. That's correct. And that does happen sometimes. So anyhow, when we follow the norms of canon law, it's something that every bishop has to follow canon law. We make an oath to do that before we're ordained bishops. So I'm responsible to follow the law of the church. So there's various things. I gave a few examples. The fact that um, that when there's even a single act of sexual abuse by a priest or deacon, 
that the offending priest or deacon is removed permanently from ecclesiastical ministry. That's canon law now. Mm -hmm. Um, That must be followed. And we have our own process in canon law that we observe when there are canonical penalties that are imposed. In addition to uh, the canon law penalties that Bishop mentioned, it is, of course, a crime in the state of Indiana and in every state in the United States to engage in sexual abuse. In -hmm. Indiana, it could be the crime of child molesting. It could be the crime of child seduction. It could be sexual misconduct with a minor. These are among the crimes that could be charged and sometimes have. Some priests have gone to prison as a result of their criminal activity uh, with minors and sexual abuse of minors. So that's why there are sometimes two tracks, parallel tracks, a track of criminal law under secular authority in the United States here at the state of Indiana, and also a parallel track of canon law uh, where there could be a judicial trial if the priest continues to assert his innocence against a credible accusation. So uh, these are the things that Bishop has to deal with simultaneously and why in this diocese, and in dioceses across the United States, pursuant to the charter, bishops and those in authority are required to report to police and to prosecutors allegations of any kind of sexual abuse or misconduct with minors. And that we're very diligent about. Um, And um, as bishop, I'm always making sure that a report is made when there are uh, allegations of sexual abuse of minors. And of course, there are applicable civil laws with respect to the reporting of allegations. But even if it's not required by civil law in certain situations, for example, uh, because it was so many years ago, I still report it, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, because I I just think it's important. I also want to mention how we advise someone who's making uh, an allegation of their right to make a report to civil authorities, because sometimes they'll come to the church and report it, but they won't go to law enforcement, for mm-hmm. example. But we we advise them and support their right to do that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit more. You've mentioned a couple times the idea of credible allegations. I'd like to talk about how you determine if something's credible, but also to find out if there's anything that has good that has come out of releasing the names and the list that has come out from the diocese. So that's going to be coming up here. If you have any questions for Bishop for a future episode of Truth and Charity, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, which is also where you can find past episodes of the show. You can also call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have more with Bishop and Donald Schmid here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop and our special guest, Donald Schmidt, who is a lawyer and also a member of the review board for the diocese. And whenever we've been talking about the different allegations that come forward and the list that was released by the diocese, the word that keeps on coming up is credible allegations, not convictions, not guilty, but credible allegations. Uh, Mr. Schmidt, could you explain what is used to determine if an allegation is credible? Yes. A credible accusation against a priest or deacon of the diocese 
is really an accusation that after a real thorough investigation and review of all of the available information that we have, it appears more likely true than not that the accusation is true. This is not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but it is belief that the accusation is true. And that's the standard we use for whether or not to forward things to the Vatican for further process uh, or for the bishop to take action and to remove a priest uh, from ministry. Which it sounds like this would be a much more strict version than a civil law where it is has to be proved beyond a reasonable doubt versus this just seems pretty credible. So in, in criminal law, in secular society, for example, the state of Indiana and in federal cases where I was a prosecutor, a prosecutor has to prove the charge be, and each essential element of the charge beyond a reasonable doubt. In civil cases, cases involving money judgments in the United States and in Indiana, it's a preponderance of the evidence standard. And that's kind of akin to what we use uh, for priest allegations, a preponderance of the evidence standard. <laughs> Essentially, is it more likely true than not uh, that the accusation and the allegation is true? So it does have some parallel in civil law not in criminal prosecutions, but in civil law, uh, where people are suing one another uh, for money damages. We use a similar standard. So for the list that the diocese released, will that be located somewhere permanently that people could go and refer to and then be updated? And is there a process for that being updated? And then also, has any good come from releasing the names of credibly accused priests in the diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend? Yes, it will be uh, permanently on our Dawson website. Okay. Sometimes there will be changes if there's additional information, if there's a, a new new uh, credible allegation or whatever. Yeah, sometimes we get further information even about the persons that are presently on the list. We give, for example, the number of allegations that are credible. We've posted that. Well, you know, if a new victim comes forward and it's deemed credible, we would add that person's, uh, not we don't put their names, but we add to the number. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, it will be something that will remain permanently so anyone can check. And the second part of your question, has any good come from releasing the names in our diocese? I would say yes, definitely. I've received uh, letters and messages of gratitude from victims because in a sense, having the name of the uh, abuser out there brings a certain amount of healing. Mm. Uh, almost a, you know, a testament that yes, the church believes them because, you know, years ago, sometimes victims weren't well treated, you know, and they weren't believed. And of course that was tragic. That's many years ago before the charter, but we know that happened uh, in dioceses across the country. So it's kind of a validation for the victim and, uh, and that's why I released the names because that's my first priority, you yeah. know, the healing of victims. But it was only through meeting with victims that I learned how important the release of, of names would be. Mm -hmm. I think at the time that I released uh, the names some weeks ago, there might have been about a quarter of the dioceses of the United States that have put out lists, but that number is, is certainly growing. Okay. And we're about out of time with... Was there anything else that you wanted to mention, though, before we go? Another thing that I'd like to mention, Kyle, is that 
bishop's decision to release the, the, the list of credibly accused priests and deacons in the diocese has engendered really some valuable open discussion and forums. Uh, several parishes in the diocese have held question and answer sessions or listening sessions so that people in the church can talk about what has happened and what's still needed to be done within the church. And I think this kind of dialogue and the involvement of laypersons and the collaboration with lay people and the co-responsibility with lay people to deal with the sexual abuse crisis has been a really important development in part engendered by the bishop's decision to release the list. All right. Well, thank you both for being here and for sharing this with us. And before we go, Bishop, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Bishop. Appreciate it, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.